legitimacy has nothing to do with the actual missionary side of our work or calling. It has to do with the public side of our life. You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javet. Today I'm joined by Steve Shormer, the president of Silk Road Catalyst. Our topic today focuses on the role of the Western church and the need for legitimacy in missions to help and gospel deprivation and bring the gospel message to all people in all places. Before we jump in a little bit about Steve, he has served as a missionary in various capacity for 23 years, beginning in China. Since 2013, Steve has been leading Silk Road Catalysts, which invests in multiple countries from Eastern Asia to the Middle East. He is married with two kids, so thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. How are you? I'm good, and, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, before we start, please tell us a little bit about your family. I believe that families and being a real family person helps our audience to connect with you, and it humanizes us as people. So please take a moment or two, talk a little bit about your family. Sure, absolutely. So I I was born, raised, and I still consider myself a Texan from the Dallas area, uh, where my parents and siblings still live. My wife is uh, her name is Janice, and she was born and raised in uh, Puerto Rico, and only left the island when she went to college in Florida. So we originally met in 2001 in England at a conference uh, at a time when she was living in Paris. I believe it was Paris. It was France, but I believe it was Paris, uh, where she was working with immigrants and refugees coming in from uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And of course, I was working in and around China. Funny part of that, there was zero sparks between us. I had a flu or cold or something at the conference, so she didn't want to get anywhere near me. Uh, but she does remember that. Uh, but in um, 2005, God caused our path to cross again. Uh, we got married in 06 and then had two kids and then off to China we went and until 2013. To start us off, uh, talk to us a little about uh, what Silk Road Catalyst does. What sets you apart as a mission organization? Yeah, so our vision uh, at Silk Road Catalyst is to end gospel deprivation. So ensuring that everyone globally has gospel access. So. To do that, our primary focus is disciple-making and church planting, uh, where there are few and sometimes no Christians. Uh, but with that said, we also have uh, a secondary focus. We, we, don't, we believe that we just can't simply focus on one's eternal state while ignoring the physical needs that may surround them. So our secondary focus, and I'll emphasize it is secondary, uh, is in the area of compassion ministries, community development. So like the earthquake relief we were involved in earlier this year uh, around Turkey and Syria, uh, flood relief uh, currently in South Asia, which, what's going on over there. But as far as our DNA of, as an organization beyond our vision and purpose, I'll, I'll describe it like this. We want to see what I call an 80-20 split in our staff, which is about 80% being nationals or near nationals and 20% being foreign missionaries. So I'm not talking about partnering 
with nationals as an outsider coming in and we just build a, a simple partnership because the nationals on our team are actually part of our organizational staff. And in fact, they're part of our leadership team uh, because we always aim to have our key leadership positions filled, not just with those with the right skill sets, which is important, but with those who are from those areas of the world. So uh, just a quick example, our um, regional director over South Asia is Nepali, our East Asia director uh, is from that region. We're also in the process of um, uh, appointing a leader in the Middle East, but they all come from those backgrounds. They all come from those religious backgrounds. And anyone who serves under or in those areas, whether they be Americans or a national, serve under their leadership uh, on the field. That's fantastic. I think we need to do this uh, more and more and allow brothers and sisters from other nations to sit on the table and have part in vision casting, have part in uh, executing the vision and uh, contribute their talents and gifts. So uh, that's amazing, brother. That's awesome. Uh, could you define gospel deprivation for us? Is there an estimate how many of how many people are deprived of hearing the gospel message? So when we point our use or decided to use the term gospel deprived, which would be the term that we would label them as, it really was coming down to the issues I find with using the term unreached people groups. Uh, I find that it's overly used. I find that in some ways the definition has been hijacked. Uh, for instance, here in South Carolina, there's someone, I, ca I can't even remember who it was. I was just in a meeting where they were describing nurses in my community as, a, a, as an individual unreached people group. And I just feel that it's gotten to the place where that term doesn't mean as much as it used to. And so we needed to come up with something that would differentiate the people I live around in the Bible Belt versus the people we're serving around in the 1040 window. And so we came up with the word uh, gospel deprived. So I would probably say definition wise, it's very similar to the actual definition of unreached people group. But within that, we're also recognizing that we're not a people group centric ministry. Uh, because as we were talking about who are who we're pointing into leadership and who our staff is made up of, most of them are from unreached people groups. Uh, even their families who are either Hindus or Muslims or whatever background they come from, who are not believers still, are part of unreached people groups, but they've heard the gospel. So we would not consider their Hindu family or their Muslim family unreached anymore simply because they've got gospel access. Right. Uh, so we're really looking for those communities, breaking it down to a smaller section of people, a gospel deprived community where either there's no Christian or very few Christians within them. So we're trying to engage places like that. That's that's good. I like even the clarity on how you are applying that definition to your own structure, your own organization. That's good. Uh, so with so many living isolated from gospel access what do you believe needs to happen for everyone globally to gain access to the gospel? Yeah, that's a, I think that answer is very complex, hmm. ultimately, and I definitely don't have all the answers for that. I, I do know that the good news in Scripture says the gospel will go everywhere. 
and we Amen. know it's going to happen. The timing of that, I have no idea. As far as what we can do, I think part of it has to do with the whole train of thought of, of mobilizing the whole church for the whole world. Now, there is has been a lot of, of work in that area where they're mobilizing uh, Latinos, Africans, Asians, people from all over the global south of the majority world. And so there's a lot of good effort going on in there. I still think there's more needed. I think there's, um, you know, I keep running across uh, person after person who, who will explain the, the challenges they may have, whereas maybe an American wouldn't have as much of especially in terms of funding. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think there needs to be a greater effort in empowering that part of the church to be more engaged. When we lived in China, I, I started seeing the writing on the wall where I, I could tell that the, the, the outsiders were not going to have the luxury we had for many years there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that door has shut now. I think for someone like me to walk into a place like China, it's it's far more challenging today than it was five years ago. Uh, not just because of COVID, but because of just things the government was implementing and starting in 2018. There just needs to be, uh, I would say, more of an assertive effort of maybe churches in the West partnering with churches in the South, yeah. uh, Global South. Organizations being more intentional, not just focusing on the people from their country, which tends to be Western countries and mobilizing, but really figure out how to do more in mobilizing the Global South not just in partnerships, but actually in team members, um, staff team members. And mm -hmm. as we talked about earlier in leadership, I do think there is, there is the, the idea that nationals are, are the key and, mm -hmm. and there is truth to that, but nationals are not everywhere. Right. You know, the ones who are ready to go and able to go, they don't exist in all the communities we're necessarily talking about within our organization. So. You know, we need to we need to find people closer, maybe near nationals or something, how to move them in strategically, um, how to undergird them appropriately uh, so that they can go. Because uh, as we've seen, just I'll end with this, as we saw in China in the last couple of years with COVID, uh, there were many teams, I'd say, in, the, in certain parts of China, I won't specify where, but certain parts where it was a mixture of Chinese and uh, foreign missionaries, but when the foreign missionaries had to leave or were forced out, uh, the the national missionaries were left stranded and and didn't know what to do. Yeah, uh, because they weren't empowered to lead. And this this was a these were Chinese brothers telling me this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they felt uh, not abandoned because they understood what happened. So they didn't they knew that their uh, their foreign counterpart wasn't purposely trying to put them in a bad spot. But the, the outsider didn't necessarily equip them to lead. And, and that's why it's important that we equip uh, the people closest to these cultures to be the leader and where we submit to their leadership. So if something happens to the outsider, uh, the ministry will carry on. Uh, the hiccup will be minor. Right. Um, but we, we want to minimize those hiccups as much as possible. Yeah. That's brilliant. And I think we see that with our military too, right? When it's not that they wanted to abandon, it's just time changes. And I think the same mm -hmm. thing, political, geographical conflict, all of these things are impacting the gospel reach too. So national is the answer. And therefore, I think we need to figure out how to empower them so they don't feel abandoned, but at least they don't feel uh, they are not equipped. So they need to have that confidence that they can work with their own community 
as uh, leaders. Well, let me take you back to those uh, gospel-deprived countries, right? So what are some of the biggest challenges in sharing the gospel in these places? You know, there's always going to be the, the commonly known challenges we tend to highlight, like access uh, is a big issue, uh, especially for outsiders. Persecution, which we're, you know, watching firsthand in um, places like Pakistan, India, Nepal. Uh, government restriction, which also goes back to access, but, you know, government restrictions could be as simple as, if, you know, there were certain places in China where foreigners couldn't go, but nationals could. Uh, and of course, a, a lot of other barriers, but I think the biggest hurdle we face is ourselves as the church. So many believe that if, if we're not called to go to these places, that they have no role in delivering the gospel in these places. So those who are not called to go, and then they consider themselves like they have no role, they don't, you know, they either find ways not, or they have reasons where they don't give, or they don't see the purpose in giving, or praying. Uh, you know, I, I really believe that doesn't matter where we're at, uh, economic statuses or anything, we all have a role to play. You know, we can all pray. It doesn't matter if you're in a small village in Africa or Asia where you have no access financially to, to, to travel anywhere. You can still pray. You can still pray for, uh, I know one, there's a group of pastors in a certain uh, very restricted country where they don't have the capacity to lead their country, but they're learning about missions from one of our leaders. They're they're learning about praying for unreached people groups uh, or the gospel deprived. They're they're learning these things that they can do uh, in the process. Uh, and then and then for those who go, or even I would say for those who want to go or are considering to go, because. I think I read somewhere that out of 100 people who say they're committed to going somewhere, only one out of 100 goes. I don't know the stat or where that came from. It's just uh, something I heard along the way. Uh, oftentimes, we let fear determine how we move forward or if we move forward. By doing that, we, we inherently slow down gospel advancement when we let security issues. And I'm a huge advocate for security. I, I used to work in kind of the security field. I, was, I, I actually worked in uh, uh, researching identity fraud, so I'm a big advocate for this kind of stuff. But sometimes we let security dictate our entire ministry. And when we do that, we miss gospel opportunities. And so we don't need every Christian packing up their bag, moving 8,000 miles away. Uh, that would be ludicrous because then who would stay back like where I live to do ministry because we still need that here. Um, but we just need every Christian to be concerned about following Jesus to the end uh, rather than preserving our lives on earth regardless of where he leads us. The Navy SEALs of missionaries, you know, they're, they're not people who are running around with guns in their hands trying to advance the gospel. They're just kind of specialized small groups of people who are going into difficult places who are willing to risk everything. Because ultimately, if we're going to get the gospel everywhere, uh, we have to realize there's a risk. For those who go, we have to accept the risk. And we just have to leave it in God's hands. You authored a book, Legitimacy in Missions Matters, Five Marks Toward Legitimacy. Could you talk about what led you to write this book and uh, more specifically uh, help us to understand this term legitimacy in your context in the context of your book i'll first explain it as who the book is for because i think that's important so it can be for anyone serving 
as a missionary, even a national, but uh, for the most part, it's for foreign missionaries who are serving in, in challenging places like the 1040 window, mm -hmm. uh, who need uh, what you may what you may label like a public identity that is not missionary. Uh, so in fact, legitimacy has nothing to do with the actual missionary side of our work or calling. It has to do with the public side of our life that we create when we walk into these countries who do not want missionaries or, uh, or allow missionaries to freely operate. So as far as your question, the short answer to why the book was written, um, and I've gotten some flack over this, which is fine, but the short answer is deception. Mm. Okay. So uh, for the sake of the gospel, it was considered by some and, and, and the people who taught me that was biblically valid uh, to lie to obtain a visa or a resident permit to live in a country want, that, that we serve in. Mm. You know, it didn't matter what you put on the application. As long as you're doing it for the sake of the gospel, you could lie constantly. The flip side of this, there is a, a group of international students at a seminary here in the States where the president got onto them for working jobs under the table, mm -hmm. earning money under the table quietly. And so he got onto them and, and their response back to him was, well, when you tell your missionaries and your denominations to stop lying to our countries about why they're there, then we'll stop working here. It kind of gives you a picture of what I'm talking about. We look at, uh, well, if we do it, if you come to our country, it's not okay. But if we come to your country and do it, it's okay. And so the reality is I just find too much uh, deception out there, especially as I was living in China, that really didn't need to happen. I don't think it was necessary. I think we got away with it. I think the government was not fooled by it. In fact, a, a close friend of mine, before they had to leave China, he, he sat down to get his business visa and, and the police told him, we don't believe you're starting a business. I mean, they've got the experience. They know what foreigners do. And they say, you have a year to prove that this is a legitimate business or you're out of here. Things are changing in these countries. So uh, the good news is I find that uh, more and more missionaries today, especially the younger generation, is refusing to use this tactic, and they're seeking legitimate avenues into countries they're, they're trying to serve. And so I'm hoping one day my book uh, will soon become irrelevant, especially as the younger generation grows up and as they become leaders themselves, uh, and that it's no longer needed. Mm. But as far as legitimacy is, it doesn't... It, it does include how we present ourselves to the government, uh, because when we're filling out those applications, it's necessary. But what's more important is how we present ourselves to our local community. Mm -hmm. Okay, so actually, just a quick story to describe what I'm talking about. There was a missionary I met in Southeast Asia, and he had started an English business. And after two years, he, he lost his credibility with the local elders of the people group. And... Uh, and what transpired in that conversation was they challenged his income. How do you live this lifestyle when we know you don't have much of an income? Traveling internationally, having a car, having a nice house. They're like, our math doesn't match up to your math. And so they thought they lost everything. But in the end, they realized the English business they were doing, it was legal, mm -hmm. but it wasn't legitimate. And so they had to transform into a new business that actually benefited the culture. And once they did that and the locals were benefited through jobs and taxes and things like that, they gained the respect back and they were able to have credibility. So he actually uh, told me that before his new business, everything was illegitimate, although legal. 
But now he was both legal and legitimate because it made sense in its context. You had an interesting phrase, the Rahab approach. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so the Rahab approach, Joshua chapter 2, when Joshua sent the spies into Jericho to spy out the land, and then the king found out, and they sent people to Rahab's house to get the spies, and you know their plan was to kill them. Rahab hid them. When the uh, Jericho people showed up, she lied about their whereabouts and, and told them where to go. So 23 years ago, when I first became a missionary, I was taught by well-meaning people that because of the story of Rahab, that it was okay to lie. It was okay to lie on your visa applications, okay to lie to the local people. It was just okay to lie because in essence, you're protecting people. But I bought into that, okay? And, and I'm guilty as charged that I taught people to do that. But then over time, I realized, but who are we protecting? Reality, I think we're protecting ourselves more than the local people because why? it's not my job to protect local people. It's their country. They know their country better than I do. I am not their um, gatekeeper. Okay. In reality, everything I do probably has more to do to protect myself and my family uh, first than it does the local people. So, you know, when I look at Rahab, I do see that um, in her context, lying to protect the spies was fine, but she wasn't protecting her herself. She was just protecting the spies. The benefit was Israel protected her when they invaded Jericho. So I will say it's okay to lie if someone comes to me and says, what is this person over here doing? Well, I'm not going to divulge what I know about them. Okay, you can ask anything about me. Uh, I'll tell you about who I am and what I do, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to give away someone else's identity and work. But I'm, I'm going to take the fall for it if I have to. I called it that because I, I, the problem was, I think we were twisting that passage to justify deception just for the sake that we could stay in country for as long as we wanted to. And in the end, we don't need to be doing that. We don't need to wave our missionary banner, but we also don't need to be deceiving people either in other ways. All right, let me ask you this question. When we talk about legitimacy, how do we balance safety and the truth? Yeah, so I, I would say that's a million dollar question right there, because I think there's always the tension of that. And of course, there's a lot of opinions floating around about balancing safety and security in ministry. And I don't believe there's a black and white answer to this question, because there's just too many nuances floating around, and, and especially when you're going from field to field. You know, what our team does in the Middle East is vastly different from what our team does in and around China. Uh, but as scripture shows us there, I would say there are times to flee. Uh, and then there are times we should run straight into the danger. And I think the lives of uh, the Apostle Paul and the early disciples uh, displayed both. They fled at times, but then they ran straight back into the danger at times. So I would say this, that safety cannot be our priority, as important as it is, because the gospel has to be our priority. We are going to proclaim the gospel to people who need to hear it, then we have to accept the risk that we're going to have to walk into and, and the dangers we're walking into and the risk we're facing. There, the, we can't just constantly create more and more policies mm -hmm. on security to protect ourselves to be able to stay longer because I can do a lot to stay in country. But the question is, is staying in country doing any good eternally? 
So the gospel has to be our priority. Uh, I tell people all the time, if you're going to get in trouble or if you're going to get kicked out, make it count. Okay, mm. don't don't get kicked out or do anything that's going to get you in trouble over something that's trivial and stupid. Make it count. If you're going to make it count, it has to be for the gospel. I mean, I was sitting in a Muslim community in China sharing the gospel with his family. The next thing I know, I, I look up to my left, and in the doorway, there's two police officers standing there watching me with my Bible laid out talking to this Muslim family. And my heart just sank. Mm-hmm. But the next thought that came to mind was, okay, they've already probably seen it. So just keep (laughs) moving forward. Whatever happens, happens. Okay? We'll deal with it. And so I just continue to share the gospel with this family. Um, Now, in my case, it worked out really well because they just moved on. They really didn't. I guess they didn't care what I was doing in that case. But I know that's not going to be the scenario every time. But the gospel has to take precedent. Uh, security has to take a backseat. I'm not saying ditch wisdom or uh, reasonable security protocols, but uh, we do need to get the gospel out there. In the end, we're not guaranteed a risk-free life. We're not guaranteed a long life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we truly believe where we're heading, yeah. in the end, we have to trust that when that day happens, mm-hmm. that it's at the right time. And until that day comes, we're going to be we're going to be able to keep moving forward. Would you please walk us through at least a a few of the five marks toward legitimacy in your book to help us uh, reconsider our missionary presence? I'll just highlight two of them. Uh, So one has to go back to the story I shared about Southeast Asia. Um, It needs to be beneficial to the community. Mm. You know, um, I, I shared the story about the guy running the English school. Now, You know, the English school didn't, you know, after doing it, he realized it didn't make sense in that village uh, because, you know, he started realizing where are these people going to go where they need English? I'm probably the only English speaker they're ever going to meet. And so there's no need for them to learn English. But what they did need is someone to come in and teach them some farming techniques and to take their crops and to build it into a, a business that actually could be exportable. Um, financially and to benefit the whole community. So they had to, it it needs to be beneficial. I think for many years, and I do think it's changing, uh, especially again with your younger generation now, uh, coffee shops and English schools were the top two things that um, businesses that missionaries would use. Uh, They're not always necessary. They're not always useful. um, And we're not always the right people to run those type of things. You know, not everybody has running a coffee shop is is costly. It's challenging, and um, but it's not always beneficial, mm. uh, depending on where we're at. But that could go with many careers. Obviously, there's some if you want to use the word platform for lack of a better term. Uh, doctors and educators generally are great in most places, especially doctors mm-hmm. um, and medical personnel. Uh, but we just need to make sure that. It, beneficial to the people we're serving and not just something to get us uh, an easy visa. The second one is somewhat controversial by Westerners in most cases, is a reasonable lifestyle. I don't know how many com- how many times I've heard from nationals complaining about how their uh, Western counterparts lived compared to them, or and, and even dealing with local people, um, unbelieving local people when they're when they're looking at you 
and your lifestyle, they're 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 going to get up into your business. You know, in America, we don't always get into everyone's business of income and how they do things. But when I was in China, I was like, how'd you get your apartment? How much do you pay every month? Yeah. Um, how do you, you know, all these questions, but it's normal for them. Okay. It's not, not being nosy. It's just who they are. Okay. And so, you know, if you're working at um, a teacher's salary and the teacher's salary is a thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. then you, d- despite all, all the support you may have raised before going that they don't see, you need to have a thousand dollar a month lifestyle in front of your community. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to take seriously our what our uh, lifestyle looks like, irregardless of what we actually have access to. That was part of the problem with the guy in Southeast Asia. His lifestyle was much bigger than his perceived income. Although we know where his money came from, they did not. And it caused yeah. an issue for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those are two, two of the Two of the uh, five that I wanted to highlight, there's, there's obviously three others, but, you know, these are just things, and I wrote these to help people just think the process before they walk in, how do I need to live holistically? Because it gets very tempting to walk in and say, man, life is so cheap here, right. you know, for us. And I could have this big apartment for like a few hundred dollars, where in the US it'd be $2,000, mm-hmm. but here I can afford it. But Okay, it's true I can afford it, but unless you have a, a business that provides an income for you to afford it, you need to just table it and get something that makes sense right. uh, to the local people. What does legitimate presence and missions not do? I believe I wrote four things on there, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to share two of them. One, it's not persecution-free because sometimes we have this idea or this notion that if I start a legitimate business and I'm making money, that it's going to somehow protect me uh, from persecution. Now, I do know there are scenarios where maybe it delayed persecution or delayed the forced exit out of the country, mm-hmm. but it's not going to guarantee a persecution-free lifestyle because what gets people in trouble is not the business, unless you're lying about it. It's the gospel. The gospel is what makes people angry. It's what makes religious radicals angry with us. It's everything tied back to a religious something um, about our faith in their eyes. And so no matter how legitimate we are, no matter how much our business makes or how much it blesses the community, there's always going to be a breaking point because if we're proclaiming the gospel, if we're just claiming to be a missionary and not proclaiming the gospel, then we could probably go a long time and not face any problems. Mm-hmm. But then again, why are we claiming to be missionaries then? We should just be businessmen who are Christian living in a foreign country, and that's okay. That's needed as well. So it's not persecution-free, and it's uh, the model holistically is not flawless. There's no one model that works perfectly everywhere. Uh, I've seen examples where people have tried to mimic models from one country to the next, and it just mm-hmm. falls apart. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not a flawless model. It, there's nuances with mm-hmm. it. There's nuances in living in a foreign country. There's even in country, let's say like India, for example, there's languages, just hundreds of languages and people groups and cultures. It's not all equal. And going from south to the north or even crossing the street in Delhi from one 
community to the next, you could end up in a different religious place, a different language. You know, what works across the street may not work in the new community. So Mm -hmm. there's no perfect model. It's just full of nuances. We, it requires a lot of patience, a lot of discernment, um, and a lot of commitment to constantly reevaluating what our legitimacy looks like (laughs) and making sure that it's constantly flowing with how the community flows in real life. How would a missionary go about establishing a presence of legitimacy? What steps and planning should he or she follow? So in, in the back of the book, I actually wrote out just a one, basically a, a one page recommended steps that people could take. Uh, oh. The first one is not a recommendation. It's, it's just something they need to be doing anyways, is just pray. Pray a lot. Don't ever just get a good idea and run with it. Just pray without any expectation of which direction I'm going. Just let God guide you uh, in the steps. You know, re- you know, wherever you're going, research visa options if you're a foreigner. Uh, figure out what options that exist and, and start laying them out in front of you to figure out what might be the best options for yeah. you. Because yeah. not every country is the same. The third one is before you even jump into something like business or tent making or even launching a, a, a nonprofit or an NGO, I'd say commit a couple of years to learning language, culture, the customs of the people you're going to be serving them on. That is so critical. And it's 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 like a business investment. You're, you're investing for the long term. So don't look at that as a nuisance or an obstacle in the way of really doing what you want to do, because the, the, the sooner you learn these things, the better your ministry and the stronger right. your ministry becomes right. uh, holistically. Market research is the fourth thing. You want to know the market. You want to know what your community is like. You want to know where you're going. If you have ideas, you want to know, do they work? Have they worked? Mm-hmm. Is it even um, something that could work? So mm-hmm. just like anybody in business in the U.S. would do, do your market research because you may regret it. And you may waste a lot of money if you don't. Uh, network with like-minded people who are uh, who have gone before you, who have mm-hmm. tried things, who have made mistakes, who have failed in areas, who have been successful in areas. Get to know them. Don't act like you're walking in with all the answers. So, so network with like-minded people, foreigners and nationals as well. Uh, communicate with your local church. That's critical. Uh, I beat that drum a lot. You got to communicate with them, even in areas like this, they don't need to just know about how you're planning a church or how you're making a cycle. They need to know how you're living and what it takes to live there and, mm. and know the details. Seventh is walk by faith because if you're not willing to walk by faith, just stay home. It's going to be too rough on you. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, just go back to the first step, pray more. Just keep Amen. praying, bathe it in prayer, because uh, if you don't, uh, you're probably going to hit a lot of obstacles you you weren't expecting and 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 just make a lot of a lot of mistakes that you wish you probably that maybe God would have guided you around or away from. I mean, you're going to make mistakes, but we want to mitigate, hopefully mitigate how many of those mistakes mm-hmm. you make mm-hmm. in the end. Um, yeah. So pray a lot. So if let, let's talk about the church, uh, how can um, a sending church help a missionary strengthen his or her presence of legitimacy? The first thing is accountability. Okay. Uh, I believe in that a lot. So churches don't need to, they need to be holding their missionaries accountable on the ministry side, but they need mm-hmm. to be holding them accountable, accountable on the uh, legitimacy side or their presence mm-hmm. and making sure that they're above reproach when they go into these places. So 
you know, and, and, and another way that churches can serve in these ways is as the missionary gains knowledge of what is possible and what what they need to pursue is to find people in the church who can help in those areas, not necessarily move over there with you, but maybe they have skill sets or knowledge in areas, or maybe they're interested in, in ex- helping you maybe as an investor or some, there's just so many ways. Mm. There are uh, missionaries out there who have started incredible businesses that are profitable, mm-hmm. that are worthy of investors to come into. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but you need to really start with your church to, to garner some of that knowledge and expertise from people in those areas who have started businesses in the U.S. or abroad or in the area mm-hmm. trying to look for. Um, but even if they don't have the expertise, still starting with them because the people in your church will likely know someone out there who has the, the skill sets and the expertise that you need to learn from. So That's good. Uh, really the local church, I think, is really the, the base of everything that can happen with a missionary family. Yeah. And are, are going to be so critical in every aspect of what you do. That that's some solid advice, Steve. Uh, anything else you want to add to this conversation? Uh I'll just I, I've said this already, but having um a presence of legitimacy has a lot of nuances. It's mm-hmm. not black and black and white in the end. There's we need to give a lot of grace and mercy when as people are trying to figure this out and because I've come a lot of, of non-grace and non-mercy um, out there with people just expecting right. um, a perfect scenario. So mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of mistakes. There's going to be a lot of pickups along the way. A lot of patience is needed. But in the end, if God has called you there into these uh, cross-cultural settings, mm-hmm. he knows what you need. He knows how to get you to the place where you, you know, you're always going to be the outsider. But the more you learn to live in that environment the more the people begin to accept you as part of them mm-hmm. as part of their family and so just be patient uh, be diligent but in the end just let god guide so if uh, listeners wants to get in touch with you what are the easiest ways so the best way is through our website at silkroadcatalyst.com um, but you can also go to our Facebook, Twitter pages as well. We we check those if people want to direct message us. Of course, we also have a YouTube channel. So if people want to reach out to us through that. Great. That will also be included in the episode's uh, description. Um, now for the last thing, because we talk about heavy topics, we've been talking about persecution in those places. We've been talking about legitimacy, all these different complicated things uh, as well related to missions. I'd like to ask you to tell a joke to lighten the mood. So I was I was talking to my wife about this and we're like, but you're not a joke teller. <laughs> That's exactly so, why I ask, actually. I have never found even one person on the show who is a joke teller because all of them are very serious people doing really serious stuff. That's why I want I wanna hear a joke. Well, I had to research one. And so I found I don't know if some people are going to approve of this or not, but I think Jeff Foxworthy can be pretty funny. And he's got some redneck joke, but he also has, you might be a Baptist joke. So as, as okay. <laughs> a Baptist and someone from a very strong Baptist background, um, I found some Baptist jokes. Uh, so some of his, he would say, if you've ever told a pastor, we've never done it like that before, you might be a Baptist. <laughs> So this was definitely true when I was a kid. If you've never, if you've ever joined a church just to play softball, mm-hmm. 
you might be a Baptist. And this is me. If you've never sat closer to the front row than the back three rows, then you might be a Baptist. There you go. Good. That's good. You see, we all need some humor in our lives too. It makes us uh, human too. Thank you so much for being on the show again. That was Steve Shormer, the president of uh, Silk Road Catalyst. And thank you to all our listeners. We truly could not do this without you. If you learn something, have a topic suggestion, or would like to leave us feedback, drop us a note at OurUrbanVoices.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in in two weeks for more honest discussions from Diverse Voices. been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. 